On Christmas, parents and grandparents everywhere love to spoil their children with presents. They derive joy from seeing the rush of excitement on the child's face, and it delights them to give gifts. Such gift giving is sacrificial. You're essentially giving away your hard-earned money, probably to buy just some pieces of plastic made in China. This gift giving is also unconditional. These are free gifts. You're not asking for anything in return. There's nothing you, the children need to do to earn these gifts from you. In fact, any attempt at repaying you for your gift would be a bit offensive. I mean, can you imagine a child opening up a, a huge power wheels at Christmas and saying, thanks, Grandma. Now, how much do I owe you? Can I pay you in installments? You'd be a bit offended. And trying to pay back implies that the gift was not given freely and that it wasn't really a gift, but a loan. It calls into question the loving nature of the gift. And so, rightly, you don't expect any repayment for your gifts. They're truly free grace gifts. But there's one exception. There's one thing you do expect back. Now, if you don't get this thing, it's not like you're going to take your gift back. It really is unconditional. It's just that you strongly hope to get this one thing from your child or grandchild. You're expressing love to them by giving them the gift. And then you hope in return that they're going to express love by giving back what? Thanks. And the one thing you rightly expect back is a thank you. Now, this thank you is not a payment. It's just something you hope to get back in return equally freely. And why is that? Well, because it pleases you. It's how they show love and honor. And further, giving thanks comes with the recognition that they didn't earn this gift or deserve it, but that you gave it truly freely. And so they're really recognizing the the act of love in the giving of the gift. And saying thank you connects the, the child to the gift giver. And so it's only right for us to teach our children to often and always express thanks for gifts. And I hope you can equally see how the same should be true of us and God for the gift of salvation. God has given us the greatest gift in salvation, purely unearned and undeserved. That gift it really was just the opposite. I mean, we deserved nothing but the full weight of his wrath poured out upon us for our sins. We lived lives of immorality, unrighteousness, idolatry. We deserved judgment, but God, out of his pure mercy and love, he just set his love on us as his children and gave us the gift of new life. He made us born again. He gave us an eternal inheritance. This all comes as a true free grace gift. And God does expect one thing in return. It's not a form of repayment like God would ever revoke his gift of salvation. It really is free. But it pleases him that those who receive this gift of salvation would, would say thank you. And more than just mouthing the words, he is glorified when the redeemed live lives of thankfulness and praise and worship. And that's an appropriate response. We should be a people characterized by an ongoing thankfulness because we've received the greatest gift. And that fact comes into sharp focus in our passage this morning, Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. And you can open your Bibles there now, Colossians 1, 12 through 14. We've already been hit with a couple doses of thankfulness in Colossians. Paul opens the letter by giving thanks to God for the newfound faith of the Colossian believers. As soon as he heard that they had 
come to believe in there was a church in Colossae, he's been continually giving thanks for the fruit of the gospel in their lives. And that, that thankfulness is a mark of faith. It's a mark of maturity. It shows a real recognition of God's grace gift of salvation. And so accordingly, Paul wants them to have the same understanding of salvation, that they might have the same response of thanksgiving. And so as we learned last time, Paul prays for them in verse 9. He prays they would be completely filled with the knowledge of God's will. He wants them stuffed with the full breadth and depth of God's plans and purposes for our salvation. And he prays that because he knows renewing your mind and filling your mind with truth is the means to to living it out. And so he makes that clear in verse 10. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, verse 10, so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. I mean, we who've been saved now want to please God in all respects. And we do that by walking worthily before him. Now, what does that worthy walk look like? When Paul goes on, he follows that up with four participles, just four statements giving a depiction of a worthy walk. Walking worthily includes, number one, bearing fruit in every good work. Number two, further increasing in the knowledge of God. Number three, being strengthened with all power for the sake of endurance. And number four, joyously giving thanks to the Father. It's just a sampling of transformed living, but it's a fitting snapshot of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, all that was last week. We covered all of that right there last time. But you notice that last depiction of a worthy walk that Paul mentions in verse 12. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. That one takes on a life of its own. And Paul spins off that last depiction of a worthy walk into its own thought. And then he just runs with it in the following verses. And that's because thanksgiving is a big deal. I mean, you know, a, a nectarine is mature and ripe by that you know, sweet aroma it gives off. And likewise, a Christian should be known by this aroma of thanksgiving that just continually comes from them. That's where you, you see a mature Christian from that. And this life of thanksgiving greatly pleases the Father, as we'll see. It also blesses us. And Paul knows how extremely significant a life of thanksgiving is. And so, in verses 12 through 14, really spins off this thought to remind them and us of why we should be joyously giving thanks to the Father all the time. And he gives three reasons to be exact. So that's what we're going to cover this morning. Verses 12 through 14, three reasons why you should joyously give thanks to the Father all the time. Three reasons why you should joyously give thanks to the Father all the time. The first from verse 12, God qualified us. The first, like God qualified us. And go back to verse 12. And that technically we covered this last week, but Paul takes this fourth depiction of a worthy walk and runs with it. So we need to look at it again. So go back to verse 12. He's saying how we should be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So one way we live out a worthy walk before God is by actively giving him thanks. Now we learn this is a present active participle, which just indicates this continuous ongoing action. 
that our lives should be characterized by ongoing thanksgiving. Now, do you still thank your parents for that little toy you received at Christmas 30, 40, 50 years ago? No, and that's not expected. In fact, if I was thanking my parents every day for giving me, you know, wrestling action figures 30 years ago, it'd be a little weird. Not expected. But what if your parents bought you a car? A little more substantial of a gift. That might beckon some ongoing Thanksgiving every now and then. Maybe every now and then when you see them, you might say, you know what? Thanks again for this car. It was a big gift. I just appreciate your generosity. And I bet you can imagine there's some correlation between the value of a gift and then the, the magnitude and frequency of the Thanksgiving that follows. But this helps explain why our Thanksgiving for the gift of salvation should be ongoing, daily, and eternal. Because we're talking about a gift of eternal value. We were literally spiritually dead and destined for an eternal death. But God in his grace and mercy gave us new birth and eternal life. That, that, that's a big deal. I'll, I'll take that over a new car. And the benefits of that gift go on forever. Well, so should our Thanksgiving. That Thanksgiving should start now though. And so Paul goes on to elaborate and he's going to give three reasons why we should, we should start now and then just forever Be thanking God. And so again, like I said, this first reason, verse 12, that he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Key word here is qualified. means to make sufficient, to make worthy. That God has made us worthy to receive this eternal inheritance, which obviously means that before we weren't worthy. We were unqualified to get this inheritance. You know, last December, we were in Spain. We visited the royal palace in Madrid, where the royal family holds state ceremonies. And they offer tours, but on the day we visited, we couldn't get in. And that's because King Felipe VI was there. And when the king is there, no one else gets in. Well, why not? You're not qualified. Unless you're a royal or a foreign dignitary, you're just not worthy or qualified to enter. You're kept out. And a common person is never going to be let in when the king's inside. Now, of course, an order of the king could change that. All he has to do is give the order. And in an instant, you would be just made qualified to enter. They would open the gates and, and you would be able to walk right in. And that's, that's what God has done with us when you think about it. Just by order, he's made us qualified to enter. What are we being qualified for Exactly. Well, it says a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And the term saints speaks of holy ones. These are those who are already redeemed in the presence of God in heaven. They're already in the dwelling place of God in the light. But he's saying right now we're given a share of that inheritance. And this pair of terms, share and inheritance, evoke Israel's entrance into the promised land. And both terms were used to describe the land being partitioned and divided and then allotted to each of the 12 tribes. That God gave them this inheritance and they each got a share. And God has indeed promised national Israel a plot of land for his special 
purposes for that nation. And I believe that land promise is still in effect. He has a special plan for national Israel. However, you realize the land promise itself always pointed to a greater inheritance, an ultimate promised land, heaven. And this is the promised inheritance Abraham was looking for. This is found in Hebrews 11 where it says that by faith, Abraham went out to look for an inheritance. But he lived in the land of Canaan as an alien and as a stranger. He's never able to fully take possession of that land. And it says that later he died in faith without having received that land of promise. But not to worry because Abraham and his sons understood that they were exiles on the earth. This was not their home. If they were seeking a better country, Hebrews eleven sixteen says, a heavenly one. And God has prepared a city for them there. And you see, Paul is speaking of that same heavenly inheritance, which God has prepared for his people. And so in Christ, we've been qualified to receive a share of that heavenly inheritance. Now, as a quick side note, the Jews came to believe that this inheritance, physical and spiritual, belonged to them only. They're the only ones getting a slice of this inheritance. But over in Ephesians, Paul makes very clear that God in his grace, he likewise brought Gentiles near. These Gentiles who were far off, they were without God and without hope in the world, that God, just by mercy, he brought them near in Christ. He made them co-heirs and fellow citizens in the household of God. Because indeed, all those who are of faith are Abraham's spiritual descendants, heirs of that promise. And it's a promise for the ultimate promised land, a heavenly inheritance. And that's what we look forward to. And that means it's doubly good news for us who are Gentiles, because we were doubly unqualified to receive this inheritance. But God in his grace qualified us. And really, all are qualified by grace. And grace alone. And that's really what makes this gift stand out. You have to stop and realize just how unqualified you were and you are to receive a share in heaven. I mean, you and I don't belong there. We, we don't deserve to be around the, the heavenly beings and the saints in the light. We don't deserve and, and have a place before that. The perfectly holy God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says God dwells in unapproachable light. We don't belong there. We, we don't, we're not holy like that. We're thoroughly unqualified. It's like Isaiah 6, the, the classic example of this, where Isaiah receives this throne room vision of God and his temple and his glory is filling the temple. And then immediately he says, woe is me, for I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't belong in this room. I, I got in the wrong door somewhere, but I don't belong in the presence of a holy God. But a seraphim took a burning coal, took it to Isaiah, pressed it on his lips, and then said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And in an instant, by grace, Isaiah was qualified to be in that room. He was made acceptable, made worthy to be in that room. And likewise, by order of the king, for those in Christ, and this is only made possible by Christ, that we are qualified. Right now, we're qualified to be in God's presence. 
And remember, God did all this for his enemies. Right before we were dead in our sins. We were living in the lust of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. But as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's Ephesians, 4, uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. I mean, those were all present realities. Now, obviously, the full experience of that heavenly inheritance is future, but we are, we are to rest assured that we possess a place there right now. It's reserved for us. It's kept in waiting for us, and nothing can stop us, by his grace, from receiving that inheritance. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. I mean, if you get all this, you should respond like Peter and say, blessed be God. And you, re- you should respond like Paul and say, thanks be to God. A continual thanksgiving should pour forth from your lips for being qualified for this eternal, undeserved inheritance. And really, as your understanding of the, this gift of salvation deepens, that well gets deeper, well, so should the thanksgiving that comes out of it. It should, it should get deeper as well. And so let's carry on with the next reason for giving thanks, which is meant to take our understanding deeper. This is why Paul it keeps going. He's spinning this thought off because it's worth a spinoff. Number two, God rescued us. First, God qualified us. Secondly, God rescued us. Again, verse 12, we're to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. So we find the second reason we should be giving thanks that God rescued us. This word rescue speaks of drawing out or even dragging away someone to deliver them. This word is most often used with God or Christ being the subject and we are the object. Like 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, we wait for Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, of course, there's a future dimension to this rescue that we await the full experience of its results. But again, it's important to know that there's a present dimension to this rescue as well. That this rescue has already been accomplished. Its benefits are not fully experienced, but Christ, in Christ, we've been completely delivered from the lion's mouth. It's already happened. The rescued here in verse 13 is in what's called the aorist tense. That speaks of an accomplished fact. That we are not gradually or progressively rescued. That we have been once for all delivered. That Christ's Rescue mission on the cross was 
successful and complete. Now, the modern reader might envision Christ's rescue mission like God sending Jesus as his agent, you know, behind enemy lines to to rescue these prisoners of war. But to the Jew, no doubt these terms would, would again elicit their exodus from Egypt. Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They suffered harsh conditions and severe oppression. But God, by his mercy, using his outstretched arm, rescued them. He sent his humble servant Moses into enemy territory. And by the time he was finished, you know, two million plus Jews were leaving free. They even plundered the Egyptians and the pursuing army was destroyed. I mean, if God sets out to rescue his people, there's no power that can stop him from, from doing just that. And we likewise have been liberated by God in Christ, not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin and Satan, and that Christ leads us on a type of new exodus. And before we can receive that inheritance, we've got to be delivered from our sin, delivered from, as Paul puts here, the domain of darkness. Now, the word domain speaks of authority or power. It's the sphere in which that power is exercised. And so the domain of darkness is this fallen world, which is ruled by sin and Satan. And we were captives in this world, subdued by sin and Satan in our very natures, but God rescued us. Now, as you probably know, light is often used in scripture, light and darkness, to show these contrasts between truth and error and purity and impurity, holiness, unholiness. I'm sure you get that. First John 1 5, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And God is characterized by perfect holiness and truth. The same cannot be said of us, as Paul says over in Ephesians 5.8, that you formerly were darkness. We were of our father, the devil, walking in darkness, rejecting God's purity and truth. And as such, we were destined for wrath. And we would have stayed that way unless Jesus came. But Jesus did come. The Old Testament looked forward to a time of rescue from evil. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. Looking forward, Isaiah says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That verse is part of a a context of a huge messianic prophecy, and it's quoted in fulfillment at the birth of Christ when he comes. That Jesus came to reveal the light of God and to call those who walk in darkness into the light. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. But as you know, men did not receive him. The light came into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light for their their deeds were evil, John 3.19. They loved the darkness of their sin because they ultimately worshipped self, not God. And so they hated the light of Christ because he rebuked them. And they determined to snuff out the light. And so Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified by sinful men. 
In fact, on the night of his arrest, Luke twenty-two fifty-three, Jesus said to them, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And from that moment on, through his death, this domain of darkness knew victory. They won. Led by the prince of darkness, Satan, and the fallen race held in his sway, the darkness succeeded in putting out God's light. Or so they thought. I mean, of course, the light can never be put out. And in resurrection, Jesus proved his own power and authority over the darkness. That he invaded enemy territory and he just proved too powerful. Christ himself subdued and bound the forces of evil. He plundered their house and he led forth a host of captives. This was a complete and successful rescue mission in the domain of darkness. This was accomplished on the cross, but it's experienced anew each time God brings a dead sinner to life, freeing them from sin and Satan and bringing them to faith and repentance. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. It says, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But, verse 6, but God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Our very hearts and natures were part of this darkness. But the same God who said, let there be light, he caused the light of the gospel of Christ to shine in our hearts and and we came alive. We were rescued from the domain of darkness. We were called out. I mean, do you realize all of this happened to you when you believed, when you confessed Christ? I mean, do you understand and and appreciate the, the magnitude of the gift that was given to you in salvation? We don't. We we need to go further. It's been said that when you come to faith in Christ, You spend the rest of your life just figuring out what happened to you when you were saved. And and so it is. You know, Christ stands and offers new and eternal life in the light of his glory for those who believe. And he still offers to rescue captive sinners and, and set them free. But those who continue to hate the light and reject this offer, they will soon find God's wrath. And that their eternal destiny consists of, as Jesus put it, the outer darkness. It's not just the darkness. It becomes the outer darkness. A place where he said there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're here today and you've not turned from your sins and and love of the darkness. And turned to Christ and, and faith and repentance. Do so now. You can know a new life of joy, free from just the ruin and the hardship that sin brings eternally. But you have to leave the darkness and follow Christ. For those who have been rescued, you know, among many things, at the very least, pondering, thinking, remembering your rescue, that should cause you to say thanks, to, to give thanks. You should daily thank and praise God for 
your deliverance. You don't, you don't live in the darkness anymore. You don't have to live in the darkness anymore. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why did God do this for us? He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to be a people who just all the time proclaim the excellencies of, of the God who rescued us from the domain of darkness in Christ. And, and a big way we, we do that is just by giving thanks, living a life, just this constant thanksgiving. Well, there's one more reason we need to cover. Let's do that now. Not only are we saved out of darkness, but we are also transferred into his kingdom. And so thirdly, and finally, that God transferred us. God qualified us, God rescued us, and now God transferred us. I see 13 and 14 again. Verse 13, he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're to give thanks, not just for our rescue, but also our transfer. Now, obviously, these thoughts are complementary. God takes us out of the domain of darkness. He's got to put us somewhere. And, well, thankfully, he chose to put us in his kingdom. Not purgatory, in his kingdom. This word transfer was used of the displacement of a conquered people into another land. Very common tactic among ancient kings. You you conquer people, you deport them all to some foreign land, and it just crushes their spirits in any hope of insurrection. Happened to Israel, they were exiled to Babylon. But this verse pictures a type of reverse exile, that we were exiled in the darkness, but but God rescued and then transferred us back into his kingdom of light. Specifically, we were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Literally, it says the son of his love. And Jesus, he's the king. He's the king of the kingdom. And God loves the son, and he's chosen to set his love on all those who likewise love the son. And so when he transfers them, he transfers them into Christ's kingdom. This is another one of those already and not yet truths in Scripture that we obviously don't live in heaven right now. And the full expression of the kingdom is still future. But we've already been transferred. Our citizenship is there now. And that kingdom has been inaugurated on earth. And the rest of the world does not live under the reign of Jesus, but we do. And we are right now citizens of that kingdom, and so we should live that, live that way. So Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that we are, or rather our citizenship, is in heaven. He says that as a present reality, our, our, our spiritual passport has already been transferred to heaven. And that was made possible by Christ. It was made real by Christ. Specifically, his redemption as Paul says in verse 14, that in whom we have redemption. You know, the atonement Jesus accomplished for us has many facets, like sides of a diamond. 
And each one puts on display what was done for us in just a, a different way, a slightly different way. And so one big facet of the diamond of redemption or the diamond of atonement is redemption. It's a big word. The Greek word speaks of setting captives free by payment of a ransom. And it was used of setting slaves free in the slave market by paying their ransom price. And it's a fitting word to describe what God did for us. That Christ paid the purchase price of his own blood to to buy us, to redeem us, to ransom us, that we might be lawfully transferred to his kingdom. Paul says that in Ephesians 1.7, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You know, our sin was a problem. And payment had to be made. And we were going to have to pay for ourselves eternally under God's wrath. I mean, it's not like God could ignore our sins and look the other way. He can't. But the only way to secure our rescue and transfer was by redemption. We had to be redeemed. The price had to be paid. The ransom price had to be paid to God the Father himself for his wrath. To satisfy his just wrath that was due our sins. And Jesus made this ransom payment on The cross dying in our place. And what this ransom accomplished was the forgiveness of our sins. As he says in verse 14. Now Jesus by bearing God's wrath. He drank that whole cup. There's nothing left. And and as a result it enabled us to be completely forgiven. Of all of our sins. This forgiveness speaks of full remission. It's a full pardon. It means that. Because of Christ's death, God has sent away our sins. No, it's it's not technically possible, I don't think, for God to forget our sins per se. But in Christ, he treats us like they never happened. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And Micah 7.19 says, God will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, so cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Our sin has just been removed from the mind of God. He will never again have any bearing on our relationship with God or our inheritance. Jesus really paid it all. This is all part of God's kingdom plan. He sent his son to die on the cross to redeem a lost people enslaved sinners so that they might be qualified, rescued, and transferred into his kingdom. And God is going to populate this kingdom and then give it to his son as a present, as a bride for his glory. And we who believe, we just reap the the benefits of that plan big time. It all comes to us by his mercy and grace that anyone who enters that kingdom does so undeservingly. But for that reason, we should thank God for our place there eternally. Three big reasons why you should joyously give thanks to the Father all the time. That he qualified us, he rescued us, and then he transferred us into his kingdom. This is one of those messages where the application, I hope it's obvious. Like it should be like super obvious here. 
Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Before you start with service, you should show gratitude. That's where it starts. And I said at the beginning, we are to be a people characterized by perpetual thanksgiving. I hope it's obvious. I still want us to think on that just a little bit more before we finish. Now, I hope you, you've picked up from what Paul says in this, this brief little passage. He's making this point among many that you know, it, it takes a full appreciation of the bad news to really see the good news amplified. And that amplifies our thanksgiving. So in other words, only, it's only when you really come to terms with how lost you were, how unqualified you were, that you see just the, the greatness of the gift given to you. And that is required for great thanksgiving. And so, look, don't neglect or sell short the bad news. The good news of the gospel comes on the heels of bad news. How do you think of yourself from when you, uh, before you were a Christian, the time from when you were not a Christian? You might think, you know, I, that wasn't that bad. I was a pretty good person. You know, it was nice and all. And that may be true relatively, but before God, no, we were all lost, dead, enslaved, unrighteous. I don't say that as a downer. It's just what scripture says. It speaks the truth of our heart of darkness. But you see, that amplifies our rescue. That we were destined for outer darkness and eternal death. We were unqualified to be with God. We had no inheritance. And that just keeps coming up. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Ephesians 5, 5. He says, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Revelations 5.21, he lists the deeds of the flesh and then he says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But see, the problem is that that's all of us. We are all that way, no exceptions. We were all unrighteous, impure, immoral, idolaters, so we had, we had no inheritance coming except the grave. But entirely by grace, there's God's undeserved favor toward his enemies. Just by order of the king and by the work of Jesus, he qualified us, rescued us, transferred us. And now we just, we wind up on the other side of that. We have an eternal inheritance. That, that's amazing grace. And that should just cause, if you're redeemed, it should just, by the Spirit, cause your heart just to say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this grace gift. It's not even like you have to work or earn that gift or a share. If you're going to qualify for a loan, you might have to work hard and improve your credit score. You've got to prove your worth to the bank to get that loan. But, but not with God. There's nothing you could do. We're just qualified by his grace. So I'm telling you, the more you, you see, you study, you appreciate the grace gift, not just gift, but the grace gift of salvation, the more you're going to give thanks. 
And your life will change as a result of that. I can also mention that, you know, such thanksgiving is the antidote to complaining. Complaining is the exact opposite of thanksgiving. And when Israel is in the wilderness, even though they had just been delivered from 400 years of slavery, they very quickly started to grumble and complain because, you know, their present circumstances were still hard. What a sad failure to remember the gift they'd just been given. Now, look, they didn't have the full experience of the promised land, but they were redeemed. It was there waiting for them. They were on their way. And so that should have been enough for their thankfulness to just overpower any complaining. But we too can all too easily fall into the same trap. As often as we lose sight of the grandeur of the gift of salvation, we're going to grumble and complain. What trials and afflictions do you have in life? What troubles you? Maybe you don't have a spouse yet. Maybe you've got conflict with the spouse you have. Maybe your kids are in rebellion. You can't find a job. Difficulty at work. Can't find a house. Your house is in foreclosure. Your health is failing. Even down to the mundane. Your car won't start or you're just tired of your car. In all the circumstances, all the trials of life, great and small, what should be our response as Christians? Should we grumble and complain at God because life isn't perfect? No. That response doesn't please God because it expresses a lack of trust in his perfect will and timing. And also, it shows an underappreciation of his gift of salvation. Now, true, we're, we're living in the wilderness and life is not perfect. We still wrestle with sin and sickness and suffering. And the promised land awaits but we are assured of our inheritance. We have already been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been redeemed from our sins once for all. And so in in the grand scheme of things, we don't have really a lot to complain about. That's just our flesh speaking. Now, I don't say this to diminish your trials, but to just mitigate your response. Try trusting God, enduring with patience, being content, and then put off complaining. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. You put off complaining, and then you put on thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Well, there it is. In everything, give thanks. The more you can set your eyes on things above and on your heavenly inheritance, the more you're going to give thanks. The more you're going to please God, the less you're going to even be tempted to complain. And your trials may appear large now, but just compared to the magnitude of an eternal salvation, they're small. And hence Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Thanksgiving like this is commanded in Scripture. That means this is something we can decide to do or not do. This is an area in which you can choose to grow and then grow. But you've got to take all that we've learned now and 
and put it into practice, make this true of you. This must become now personalized in your faith and in your recognition of the gift you have received. Have you received that gift of salvation? This was very personal to the Apostle Paul. Did you notice the subtle change that took place in verse 12 in our text? You probably didn't. It's, it's so small, but in the verses before into verse 12, Paul went from saying you, you, you to us, us, us. That he's now saying he qualified, not you, but he qualified us. He rescued us. He transferred us. That Paul now includes himself in these reasons because they applied to him the same as you and me. That Paul had the same testimony. He was living in darkness. But the light of Christ shone on him and brought him to new life, transformed him. Now granted, Christ visited Paul personally with blinding light. But you have to see that, you know, what happened to Paul outwardly, essentially that same thing happens to every Christian inwardly when they believe. That every testimony is just as supernatural as Paul's. Now, Paul did have a special commission to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And later in Acts 26, he recalls how the Lord commissioned him. Just listen to this. Listen carefully. Acts 26, 18. He's recalling how Jesus commissioned him to preach the gospel. And this is in verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. Did you catch all those very familiar terms? Darkness to light, the dominion of Satan to God, and then the forgiveness of sins and receiving an inheritance. You see, what Paul says here in Colossians That's just coming right out of his own personal testimony. He's just speaking from the heart. This is personal. And this Thanksgiving was personal to Paul. And now he's trying to show us, don't don't you get it? You've received the same gift of new and eternal life. Just as supernatural because he wants us to be moved to the same personal Thanksgiving. This is what you must do now. Respond. Receive the gift. Recognize it. And then respond with personal thanksgiving. Bow the knee to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Recall daily what he did for you and the gift he gave you. Have you received the gift? Did he qualify you? Did he rescue you? And did he transfer you? Is all this true, not for the person sitting next to you, but for you by your faith in him? And if it is, well, give him thanks and and lead this transformed life. It's a life of thanksgiving, which pleases him. And let's do that now. Now, Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gift of that comes to us by this gospel. This is good news indeed, Lord, for we, we've seen in your word and meditated this morning upon the bad news 
that in our sin, in our fallen natures, we were cut off. We were without hope and without God in this world. We were by nature children of wrath. And in our lives, they were just filled with idolatry, immorality, injustice, unrighteousness. We had nothing waiting for us as an inheritance but outer darkness. But in your love and in your mercy, you set your love upon us. For what reason? We, we can't really say. Just by your grace, we sent Christ on this rescue mission to die on the cross, to die in our place, to bear the full weight of our sins that we might be forgiven. And he accomplished his mission over the forces of darkness. He rose victorious. He offers now salvation and redemption to those who believe in him. And those who have receive a great gift, gift of forgiveness, gift of salvation, a gift of new and eternal life, gift of a heavenly inheritance. Lord, I just pray you open our eyes to this gift. We know it. We've heard these terms before, but I pray you you take us deeper still in our understanding and appreciation of what, just what happened to us on the cross and then when we believed. We need to know more. We need to appreciate more. And that will draw out from us you know, deep waters of thanksgiving and praise. And that, that will compel us to live lives of thanksgiving, which involves putting off sin, putting on righteousness. You're pleased by that, rightly so. We are blessed by that too. This is the, the path to a life lived in Christ. So open our eyes this morning. Draw us nearer to the cross of Christ. And as we behold him and, and the gift he purchased for us, May we give thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.